Section 3 of Sri Dayaneshvara, A Sketch of His Life and Teachings. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Sri Dayaneshvara, A Sketch of His Life and Teachings by Anonymous. In those days, Maharashtra was ruled by the Yadav kings of Tiogiri better known by the subsequent name Daulatabad. The tide of Muslim conquest that had deluged the northern part of India was soon, 1294 A.D., to reach Deccan and to shatter the already waning power of the Yadav kings. Twenty-one years, 1273, before the invasion of Alauddin Ramdeo Rao, the then king of Diogari, had headed a strong movement in the Deccan, to rebuild the dilapidated temple of Vitoba at Pandarpur. What the encouragement of the king and the devotion of the people did, Yaneshwar saw, and he resolved to avail himself of the awakening religious consciousness of the people. Already a band of enthusiastic admirers had gathered round him. To train them properly in the science of realization, he wrote in 1290 at Nevasa, the district of Ahmed Nagar, roughly northeast of the Pune district and southwest of Paitan and Diogiri, the Bhavarta Dipika, that celebrated commentary on the Gita, which is deservedly considered as the magnum opus of his brilliant career. The wisdom and foresight which Nyaneshwar displayed in selecting the Gita for his commentary deserve the highest praise. Deeply versed in all the Vedic lore, he could have selected the Brahma Sutras or any of the difficult Upanishads for his discourse. In selecting the Gita, he might have been guided by his devotion to Sri Krishna. Perhaps he was following, consciously or unconsciously, the trend of the national mind which it was his mission in part to arouse. The Gita has a peculiar fascination for the leaders, especially in times of national awakening. We know how that book has largely inspired many of the national leaders of the day. We know how in his solitary traveling throughout India, Vivekananda had only the Gita and a photo of Sri Ramakrishna Paramahansa for his companion. We know how it has influenced the national movement and has given it a specially spiritual character. So also it affected the Maharashtra of St. Yaneshwar's time. Apart from its singular beauty of expression, clarity of vision, and breadth of outlook, the Gita is a book, the word meaning of which even an ordinary man very little advanced in Sanskrit can understand. The writer of this sketch has seen persons who, scarcely able to distinguish the set from the Anit roots, and quite ignorant of the ten conjugations and six tenses in Sanskrit, are yet able to give in an offhand manner the sense of any verse from the Gita. This sort of Sanskrit literature found great favor with Maratha people of the time of this religious revival. The Ramayan, the Mahabharat, the Bhagavat, though the last is occasionally more difficult than the first two, and a few other Puranas were the scriptures from which both the saints and their followers drew inspiration. No wonder, therefore, that our hero should have selected therefrom a piece which has engaged the attention of the greatest intellects of the country during centuries and through all vicissitudes of the national life. And he has delivered the message of Lord Krishna in a work that will last as long as the Marathi language. It is impossible to describe the supreme beauty of this book except in language which, to those who have not read it, may appear hyperbolical. 
Never have the dry bones of the Vedanta been clothed in a richer manner. The provinces of poetry and of philosophy generally so unfriendly here meet in such harmonious perfection that the reader is unable to determine whether the palm belongs to the former or to the latter. The similes are exquisite, never far-fetched, uniformly elegant and often sublime. They dazzle the mind of the reader by their number and variety. He piles illustrations upon illustrations and by a succession of images brings home the sense of the text with a force and power that are truly admirable. St. Dyaneshvar himself was not conscious of the brilliance of his powers. In the opening chapter he says, quote, I have presumed to attempt to explain the Gita without sufficiently taking into account the difficulty of the task. I can hope to succeed only if the impossible becomes possible, if the blowworm can give light to the sun, or a tiny bird take out all the water of the sea. To appreciate the vastness of the sky, we ourselves must have vastness of imagination. So to explain the meaning of the Gita, the commentator must be at least equal to the author in intelligence and learning. I am, however, supported in my venture only by the consciousness that I am but the figurehead, and really, my guru, the great Nivritideo, is speaking. When wooden dolls move like animate beings, is that because they have life or power of movement? Is it not, on the contrary, the power of the man who holds the strings? So I need have no misgiving. The desire-yielding cow is my mother. I might be as contemptible as iron, but is not the philosopher's stone there to convert me into gold? A little later, however, all this diffidence drops off, and he says, Does the sun appear bigger than a man's hand? And yet, does it not fill the earth with light? So short are these words, but the meaning is deeper than the sea, and as infinite as the sky. It will remove all doubt, and like a kalpa tree, satisfy your desires. The sweetness of nectar, the charm of music, and the cool fragrance of the southern wind, all combined, will not stand comparison with the supreme excellence of this story. It will bring joy to all the senses at one and the same time. If sugared milk can cure you of diseases, why spoil the palate with bitter doses of medicines? So if you want moksha, you need not torture the senses and try to conquer the mind. Just hear this story and you will get it, moksha. His pride of the Marathi language is manifested in the following words. Do I hear you say that these are only Marathi words, and hence inevitably lacking in beauty? Marathi words, no doubt, but words that will put the best Sanskrit composition into shade. They are sweeter than nectar and more refreshing than the southern wind. Mark this, my friends. If you dispassionately read the Sanskrit Gita and my Marathi commentary, you cannot say which is superior to which. End quote. Though almost the first Marathi writer of distinction, he never apologizes for the use of the vernacular, and this is the more remarkable because even to the end of the 18th century, Marathi writers had always the dread of the pandits in their minds when they commenced writing. They either apologized for the use of Marathi, explained that the use of the vernacular was necessary while educating the masses, or at least reviled the pandits for their scornful behavior towards the language of the people. Yaneshwar did none of these things. He neither quarreled with the pandits nor justified his behavior, but wrote, or rather spoke, in the glad certainty that his book was bound to make a mark. 
His words of pride must never be mistaken for that vulgar pride which is at once odious and contemptible. On the contrary, it is the warmth of ecstasy that has tinged his words with occasional boldness. Otherwise, he was the same modest, unassuming Yaneshvar as ever. This is no place to describe the beauties of the work or to trace the delightful picture of the eager, candid, and doubting Arjuna so consistently developed throughout the book. One or two extracts, however, will not be entirely out of place. While commenting on the 10th and 11th verses of the 6th chapter, this is how Gyaneshvar describes the fit place for practicing yoga. Quote, Let it be a quiet place, with a beautiful cluster of trees protecting it from the hottest rays of the sun. Bits of sunshine peeping through the trees must, however, illumine it, and the wind, gentle, cool, and fragrant, be there to accompany it. No noise there except the sweet prattle of the parrot or the humming of the bee. A few ducks and swans with three or four chakravaka birds would not be entirely unwelcome, and if occasionally the cuckoo coos or a solitary peacock dances, well, we shall not drive them away. In short, the place must amuse us and at the same time awaken all the latent powers of the soul. It must purify the worldly stimulate the sataka, and must even tempt a king, if he visits it, to lay aside his crown and practice tapasya. Arjuna, eager to see the virat form of the Lord, and yet uncertain whether he would deign to confer the favor on him, says, But another desire has taken possession of my heart. Shall I unfold it? And why should I not? If the fish does not wish to trouble water with its presence, where is it to go? If the babe hesitates to suck milk from the breast of its mother, who else will feed it? And if we do not approach you, who will help us? I do not know whether I deserve to have the wish granted to me. Like the patient, my duty is to tell the symptoms to the physician. Whether I am fit or not is not my lookout. Does not a hungry person feel that he would devour the whole of this world? It is natural that I crave to see thee, O Lord but the decision rests with you and no other. I know that you will fulfill this desire, not because I am fit by virtue of spirituality, but because your munificence knows no bounds. Did you not grant moksha to your enemies, the demons? If your enemies can claim the privilege, why should your friends, servants, children be diffident? Again, if Truva was fit for your favor, why not Arjuna also? In the best translation, Nine-tenths of the beauty of the original is lost. The subtle suggestiveness of words or the wonderful magic of expression can never be translated. The book in the original will charm the reader, as it charmed the audience that enthusiastically gathered from day to day in 1290 at the temple of Navasa, where chapter after chapter was delivered extempore and taken down by the devoted disciple Satchitananda. When the work was finished, his master and brother, Nivrititev said to Nyeshvar, quote, We have had a good treat, but now let us have something original. End quote. At which Nyeshvar composed the Amrita Nubav, the taste of nectar, at ten successive sittings. The book reveals the same grasp of the subject, but being more difficult and less rhetorical, is not as popular as the first. The message of Nyaneshvar, as contained in these two books, derives peculiar significance when we remember how different it was from his own character and predilections. 
Generally, it so happens that the father of a revolution is himself, in part at least, the child of those forces which, under his guidance, are ultimately responsible for the changes brought about in thought and life. When, for instance, Mr. Tilak discards the authority of accepted commentators and gives us a new and convincing interpretation of the Lord's Song, we know that he is preaching a doctrine which, even independently of the Gita, he might have preached— a doctrine which is in consonance with his own opinions, in consonance also with the spirit of the times. But it is very difficult to lay aside your opinions and preach a gospel that is required by the condition of the country. That is what St. Yaneshwar has done. Sister Nivedita gives us a beautiful description of the master as I saw him, of the lifelong struggle raging in the heart of her master. Quote, of how, though trying to remain faithful to the banner of Sri Ramakrishna Paramahansa, he delivered a message, the utterance of which often used to strike him as a lapse. End quote. She has told us how quote, he would struggle against thoughts of country and religion, and make of himself the poor homeless wanderer to whom every country and every religion should be alike, and yet how before he even knew it. End quote. He would be spreading broadcast those words of faith and hope which sent a thrill through the hearts of his countrymen, making them conscious of their own destiny. Similar praise must also be given to Dhyaneshwar. He was a great yogin and jnanin, and yet he had preached the doctrine of bhakti because he was aware of the needs of society. Like many philosophers, he did not condemn karman for he knew that however necessary a strictly monastic life may be to an advanced sadaka, that was neither helpful nor desirable for the ordinary man. He must also be praised for having reconciled the various contending factions by preaching equal devotion to all the deities. The Puranas, in spite of their real service to the cause of religion, have by establishing the superiority of particular deities over others brought a spirit of intolerance in a religion full of toleration. But the religious revival of which Nyaneshwar was the pioneer would have nothing to do with such contemptible differences. His writings contain passages where Shiva and Vishnu receive equal share of devotion. This is the more remarkable, as perhaps he preferred for himself the Nirguna form of worship. The truth is that he and other leading saints tried to unite all elements of Hinduism, and thus present a solid front to the disintegrating influences that came in the wake of the Mohammedan conqueror. It was a deliberate step in that process of assimilation about which we shall have to speak something later on. End of section 3, read by Sandra.